Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention Metatopia at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 297, Accessible Core Mechanics and Horror. Presented by Ann Ratchet, Spider Perry, Mids Minsberg, Mids Meinberg, and Pamela Punzelan. Welcome everyone to Accessible Core Mechanics uh, and Horror. We are so excited to be covering what we will tonight. Um, we have a lot to cover, so let's start off with who we are. My name is Anne Ratchet, and I am going to be the moderator for the panel tonight. And I'm going to pass it on to the other people. Um, Spider, my pronouns are he and they. Um, and I'm a participant, I guess. Uh, Pam, my pronouns are she, they, uh, coming to you guys from the morning in the Philippines. Uh, I'm Mids, uh, they pronouns. Uh, I'm Misha B, uh, she, her. Okay, and we're going to just dump on in on everything. So we have a couple of working definitions we have for the evening um, because both the conversation of horror and accessibility are massive. So these are what we're saying when we say horror or accessibility tonight. For the purpose of horror, it is the genre in which one explores such emotions as fear, disgust, and discomfort. Because of the exploration of emotions, it is a genre that is deeply seated in emotional play, either by inspiring specific emotions or introducing topics for discussion that are typically avoided. And for the purpose of accessibility, it is the quality of which something can be entered or used. For the scope of today, we're gonna to be discussing on how the mechanics of games themselves make space for players with different needs and abilities or do not. This includes, but is not limited to conversations of disability, racism, and mental health. So we're gonna start off with one of the biggest conversations I know in the genre of horror when it comes to accessibility, which is the topic of dread. Dread is known for being one of the best presentations of tension in a mechanic. But that being said, it requires manual dexterity from the participants involved, which doesn't make it accessible to quite a few players who might have vision problems or something, maybe neuropathy, maybe they have difficulty with motor skills. And so, the question we have is like, how are we supposed to design these tension building mechanics that don't require physical skill? Uh, so in the realm of like uh, horror games that also do that building of tension, uh, but don't require dexterity, uh, Tin Candles uh, by Stephen Dewey is an excellent choice. Uh, you light tin candles, and then you either blow them out, or the atmosphere in your room blows them out, or your cat walks by and blows them out, or, you know, things happen, and the candles go out, and as 
you're, the tension is being built by you're creating the story around it. There's no dice. Uh, there's few dice. Um, but as you're the, the tension is building in the story, it's just the room that you're in is getting darker and darker and darker. And so that's creating the tension as opposed to something that you're having to do. Um, like blowing out a candle, you don't have to do it yourself. You can get somebody else at the table to do it. Or like I said, it could just happen naturally. And those kinds of things are kind of incorporated into the, the mechanics of the game as is. Um, but other things just, uh, just uh, there's always like a ticking clock. Uh, sand, uh, sand timers are, are fun. Uh, kind of countdown mechanic kind of things like when the sand runs out of the hourglass, something will happen. Um, yeah. yeah, I think any the the big thing that the that dread is creating right is the sense of uh, diminishing um, resources and increased difficulty. So you can create those things without having to rely on something that is not accessible to create the concept of diminished resources, I mean, like literally all you have to do is have a, a die on the table and turn it down, you know, one number every time a, a resource is diminished because it, it's it's the sense of loss, right? Even with 10 candles, which is creating a very specific atmosphere, um, what it's also creating is that sense of, of oh God, you know, we're it's running out, we're, we're losing things. And so there are a lot of ways to create that that don't necessarily rely on inaccessible mechanics. There's a lot of ways to approach that. So if you if you kind of drill down to the idea that what is this actually getting at? Well, it's getting at time is running out. It's getting at resources are running out and things are increasingly more fragile. So how are the ways within whatever you're doing in your game that you can create that without relying on something that you have to maneuver or you know, and, and there are very simple ways to do it. I mean, you should point out the ticking clock, you know, the turning down a die, you know, flipping a coin, whatever it is that you want to do to mark that, you can mark that without having to rely on that other thing. I particularly like tokens because it gives yep. you a sense of a pool, a pool that is filling or a pool that is empty. And you can interpret that any which way, especially if you add it with mechanics that can, that give you a certain quote unquote sweet spot. Whereas until you reach that point, you're good. But if you go past that point, you're in trouble. So you can have a very nice swing, and that is enough to make players ask questions at times. Should I spend a token on this, or should I risk gaining a token on that, knowing that these might be the consequences? And uh, another mechanic I noticed was that people like to create, uh, like to roll dice, where if you actually hit a failure, the dice, uh, the dice rating goes down. And that could also create problems for you. Or if you like the problems, you can welcome it. So you really don't have to use things that are difficult to use. You could just figure out, okay, what's an easy thing and how can I make it interesting? Yeah, and there are a lot of ways to introduce the the chance of the Jenga tower, you know, without, I mean, just using dice or a dice roller on, on a phone. One of my favorite mechanics, and I think we talked about this when we were setting up uh, the uh, the panel, is uh, clarity in Changeling the Lost 2.0. Because as you as your clarity goes down, as your clarity goes down, um, you lose bon certain bonuses and things like that. And it's almost like it's a damage track, but it's a mental damage track where you're kind of marking uh, psychic difficulty it's dealing very much with ptsd type things so you can do that and it's like well am i gonna am i gonna risk 
you know, my mental health by taking this action, which could potentially hurt me. It very, it's very similar to that, that token kind of sense. But every time you take damage, it's very much done the same way as, as taking physical damage. You're rolling dice. So again, you, you don't have to rely on the gimmick, which may be less accessible. I, I, one of the things that, that makes Dread stand out to me particularly is how it's not entirely random. There is an element of, of skill to it. There's an element of deliberativeness to it. You you have to... You're not making a bunch of rolls. You're making one choice at a particular right. moment. And so I tend... I would If I were to redesign Dread, I would go for more of a card-based system. I think that's something like mm. the Quiet Year. The Quiet Year is amazing at building up the Dread. Because when you get to winter, you are just... That card might pop up any second that's going to end the game, but you still have to make that choice. Any second now, yeah. Card. Yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. cards are great for building up that sense that you know something is going, is go, is going to happen. Right, because the, the, the cards press, are running out. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to the topic of monsters. Monsters are common use a common tool used to incite fear in the genre of horror. Many times these monsters are used because they sound cool, com are completely removed from their cultural context, be it ethnic or social. Why do we not want to do this both for cultural respect reasons, but also like for simply making better games reasons? Um, if it's okay for me to start, because it sure. is a topic that is very please, near and dear to please, my heart. Right, like context-wise, in case the audience is not aware, I am obviously femme, femme presenting, and I am very queer, and I am also brown. So those are three elements that people like to objectify and other, and, and they turn to me and say, I'm doing you a favor. You are not doing me a favor. <laughs> so uh, when you, the anecdote I also wanted to share was, I did have a designer who was basically trying to ask my partner recently, hey, can you like give me the coolest Filipino hero? Cause I'm just gonna like stick it in my game. I don't really care whether you care about it. I'm just gonna do it, right? And um, that, that left us triggered for about three hours. Because we were like, how do we begin to explain to this person for free that that's a bad idea, right? I want people to think about what a monster is at the core. We insist that it is an evil, unthinking thing. And that the term monstrous is an evil term. But really, monsters are created from a particular social context. Somebody does not become monstrous unless there were terrible, traumatic, hurtful, harmful, and problematic things that occurred to them. And I will not, like, we don't even have to go into the philosophy behind it. I think that is something, just starting at that core is enough. When you create an antagonist, why was that creature an antagonist to begin with? What are the social uh, constructs and structures and hierarchies around it that have othered this this uh, being to a point that in the eyes of many, they are a monster. If we interrogate that at its core, we can begin to understand what to do and what not to do. Uh, if, we're, if we're just gonna like pick a random monster that, that kind of embodies everything that we're, we're just chatting about, uh, Medusa. Um, mm -hmm. you, you've got uh, a woman who was wronged by the gods and then punished for being wronged by the gods and then punished further for being wrong by the and and but somehow she's the bad guy and so there's a, an element of okay what part of the social contract did this person break that made it such that it was okay to make them the monster and sometimes yep. 
the, the social contract at the time that the thing was written is very different than it is today. Um, and yep. so, like, to re-examine the, the Medusa story, or a lot of the Greek myths, really, let's, let's be honest, like, it's, whoo, mm -hmm. Zeus. Um, <laughs> uh, to, to, yeah, right. Uh, to go back and, and, and look at them through the lens of today's world, those monsters yep. don't necessarily make sense anymore because yep. the social for their era isn't a problem for us. And in fact, might be heroic for us. Uh, so to just keep using monsters without interrogating why it is that they are monsters in the first place doesn't make sense. Also, stop giving everything tits. Okay? <laughs> if it's a rip. Reptiles, uh, reptiles do not have bow. If it's a skeleton, it doesn't have boo. It, they're gone. Skeletons do not, like my my chest do not come with built-in boobs. Just just stop. Okay, I actually have a, an interesting <laughs> anecdote about Medusa. The Medusa myth we have now we have now came entirely from Ovid. Before Ovid, the story she was just a monster, no explanation, no no backstory. But Ovid made Medusa's backstory specifically to make a political point about the injustice of the Roman government at the time that he was living in. So it's always been political. And to, to kind of uh, build on that, um, when you were talking about turning the, the monsters into heroes, a lot of that is we're seeing that kind of embodied in some of the, the games that are coming to market right now. And like I, I've, I've written a lot for Scion and I you know, have to take a minute to go, hey, you know, if, if that's something you want to approach, uh, I definitely think Scion is, is a good way to do it, right? Um, there's a concept of, of denizens, and um, I believe when Demigod comes out, uh, Elsa Sunison, who is amazing, uh, wrote a whole section in that mm -hmm. that I highly recommend reading, uh, talking about uh, disability in the context of myth. So what does disability represent and how can you incorporate that, incorporate that respectfully uh, into games? So um, definitely recommend that as a resource. Um, and Elsa, of course, is a wonderful person and I, I recommend people reach out to uh, her for uh, that kind of stuff as, as well. Um, but you know, a lot of this stuff too requires us to kind of take a step back and examine some of the stuff that we have um, been bringing to the table over and over. Um, and well, what is this and where does it come from and what does it mean? Um, one of the things that, that really gets to me a lot, and you know, I'm gonna hiss and spit, and I know this is part of why this thing is in here, but um, my, my favorite example to point out to people um, are the liches from D&D. &D. Because liches in D&D &D, uh, carry phylacteries. And for those of you who do not know what a phylactery is, phylactery is the Greek word for um, what in Hebrew is called tefillin, which is a um, box in which are contained holy scrolls um, that in Orthodox settings, it's, it's men, but in non-Orthodox settings, uh, any gender can lay tefillin on a regular basis, usually on a daily basis, um, for the purposes of prayer. It is an extremely sacred object. And so the word phylactery was probably just chosen because they thought it sounded cool, but they, the people who were writing it didn't really have the context. They didn't do the full research to understand that phylactery is the word that the Greeks gave to this very holy object 
um, and kind of genericized it over time. But it does refer to something very specific and very meaningful. So now you have liches who carry around their souls in Jewish holy items. Oh my God, you know, (laughs) and we just don't, we, we just don't examine that. Um, and so I think it's, it's really worthwhile when we're revisiting, you know, some of the games that were written 20 years ago and earlier when we're looking at, you know, some of the old white wolf stuff and some of the old D and D stuff and going, so, so we're using the word jihad for vampire war, are we? Is that what we're doing? You know, and maybe we can reassess. Right. Okay. <laughs> Mish's, Mish's expression is the best. But or are we Gehenna or, or Gehenna or, yeah, there's so many things that, you know, you know, there's just, there's so many things that we could reexamine and put in a different context or just maybe we'll just choose a different word. Maybe, maybe our liches just carry relics, you know, maybe that's yeah. what they do. You know, maybe they just have boxes. There's no reason it has to have a special name. So like, yeah. 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 You don't have to use the, the special word that means something specific. Right. There you go. You know, like we don't, we don't need that. So I, I'm really yeah. glad that you brought that up because I just had like a light bulb moment about how now that everybody seems to be interested in the Philippines in particular, uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that keeps getting repeated to me by well-intentioned, but please stop it, people, is uh, <laughs> your your horror seems so horrific. I really like want to get into it. And I'm like, this isn't a kink, okay? <laughs> my my mm-hmm. horror, it's not a sexual kink, all right? Mm-hmm. Because what we have created monsters out of in our context had very specific meanings, very specific cultural connotations. And it's not just something that is a fad that you could write on or, uh, or something that you can commission me a writer to do because it's Mm -hmm. cool. Right. I I really don't like the exotification in general of the Philippines and um, Southeast Asia of how our horror seems particularly interesting. And um, on whenever I'm in my darker, more spite beast moments, I'm like, well, maybe because your horror is really boring. I'm sorry. <laughs> right? Like, what am I supposed to say to that? Instead, I usually relegate it to like, ha, that's cute. I'm going to walk away from yeah. now. <laughs> and, and on the flip I'm side. Gonna, oh, can I, I quickly chime yeah. in before we yeah. get too off topic on this? Yes. Um, because Liches came up, it's not a horror game, but I have to mention the best Lich game ever created. And by that, I mean, we don't need to write Lich games anymore. We've done it. Good job. T- um, Lucian Cons, if I was a Lich fan, like, that's if amazing. you don't know the game. I did. That's oh. amazing. I lo- no, I love you'll, it. I- you'll love the game. You will love the game. It is a amazing. super easy two-page uh, story game. Highly recommend. It. it is the embodiment of Jewish culture and also, like, the actual existence of being a lich so like that's, that's wonderful go forth I learn love about it. it i love yep. it yeah back back to scheduled conversation no um i was gonna say the flip side of that you have is the genericization of and I, there's no better or worse here there's only like wow this is what happens to my culture and it really sucks uh which is like the genericization of the word golem for example um mm-hmm. oh we need we need a a you know, creepy text, let's just smack some Hebrew on it. Or worse, there's, um, I can't remember that it's a Ethiopian language and it's blanking me, but everybody always uses that particular oh, letter Aramaic? set. Uh, it's not Aramaic, it's Eritrean, I think. Um, but but you saw it like a, a little bit, what was it? Eritrean, 
There's Steve from off screen with the safe. Um, but everybody uses it as like a demonic script and it's not, it's a living language and people just kind of grab it and throw it on and think it looks neat, you know, and, and Gollum is a word we use for, you know, every kind of homunculus. No, it's not. It's a very specific cultural thing. And so like, both of these things suck and neither one of them should be done, you know, but you see, you see the exotification and then you also see like the genericization, I guess, you know, the making generic of specific cultural touchstones. And both of those things are rotten and I dislike. And like, just like a last slide in, cause I can't help myself. Like we're off in the knot when you exotify things. It of course has to have the body of a woman. Like, thank you very much for mm -hmm. doing that. Like mm -hmm. I, I did not need another person telling me that my Asian-ness yep. is apparently a flavor. That's not cool. Yeah, and I I don't want to speak for other uh, experiences of BIPOC people, so I'm just gonna focus on that. My Asianness is not a flavor, and most especially, do yeah. not put it in horror that way. Yeah, and can we just touch a little bit on why games are better when we take these considerations into play? I, I mean, mean I the easiest reason is because it makes it so that more people want to play it. Like I I. If I see it, like, I'm sorry, if you've got a, uh, you, you got a skeleton with boobs on the cover, uh, I'm all, you, you pretty much already lost me. You know, it's little things like that. It's, it's just enough to like, you know, no, I don't want to. Yeah. So if you stop and think about your choices, like ahead of time for more than 20 seconds, mm -hmm. a lot of times you can attract more people who will play with you. Uh, so just from, the, from a, from a standpoint of, hey, yep. let's just. Yeah, have more people to play with. Yep. Think about it for five minutes. Yep. Well, also you can get some richer and more interesting ways to engage with different kinds of horror or different story line. You know, like it, there, there's things become flat when you engage with the same things in the same way all the time. Right. And so when you genuinely engage with different topics, where they exist without trying to make them pull them into your context, you can then experience more things, you know, like, Oh, sorry. My wife's doing an exalted playtest next to me. So I just got briefly distracted, but like when you're engaging with something as it exists, rather than trying to make it yours, you it's, I mean, isn't that what we're in, especially in role-playing games, right? Isn't that what we're here for is, is the experience of stepping outside of ourselves. So why do we want to bring it into our context rather than meeting it where it is? Mm -hmm. it, I mean, overall, I'll, I'll just be very blunt about it. If you want my money and if you want my talent, then you're going to have to see things from where I am and you have to understand that better. I think that there are multiple centers now on tabletop uh, it sounds very, a revolution is happening, but let's be real here. A revolution is and has been happening perhaps since in the past two years already or more. And you will see more of me and my own. You will see people entirely different from me and my own coming in. If you want to know what they're about and play with them and understand them and also understand yourself in the process, that is how you make your games better. Speaking as a, as a, as a person of white Christian descent, we have Frankenstein. We have Dracula, we have the Wolfman, who are all very interesting things that we can do interesting things with without stealing from other cultures. We can we can we can stay in our own lane and leave the space open for other people and other cultures from other backgrounds to create more interesting things based off their own history.
Mm-hmm. And there's so much that doesn't get Frankenstein. <laughs> well, there's, there's so much that doesn't get like dug into in uh, a lot of Western culture because we've been so colonial in our mindset and going out to grab other people's stuff and, and bring it in that we haven't like it's very it's very Wizard of Oz, right? It's all here in our own backyard, you know. We we have an incredibly rich mythological background that's right here you know there's there's so much even just if you just look at the united kingdom right the the mythological structure of the united kingdom the arthurian mythos the you know arthurian cycle the tuatha de Danan, like there's just, just piles and piles of things on this one set of tiny little islands then the, and that's just one thing you know there's so many there's so much stuff we already have there's no reason like like it said there's no reason that we have to go take other people's stuff yeah. Go and look at your own things and say, well, how can I reinterpret this, which is mine? And there's there's so much richness there to absolutely be un- reinterpreted and, and, you know, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to probably the reason why most people are here. Let's talk sanity mechanics. So first of all, let's talk about why they are currently problematic. And then from there, how would we design them to be reflective of an actual experience? Or like, what if we just throw them away? What would the alternative be? So let's start with the first question. Um, What is the core problem with sanity mechanics? I love how all of us are just like, sorry, I love how all of us are just like, for me, it's like the, the idea that, that a sanity is a finite pool, like, and that the same things will chip away at everybody's consciousness the same way. Um, like the thing, like the, the things that my experience steeps me in daily might be something totally outside of somebody else's realm of expertise or, or, or lived experience. Right. So the things that would completely take me out are going to be different than what takes somebody else out. Like, you know, okay, jump scares, eh, whatever. Like, I, I was literally at um, Universal Studios with my kids one year, and we were they were doing the stage show, and, you mm-hmm. know, oh, we need a for the audience, and somehow I got shown up on stage. And so, like, there's this guy, like, pretending to jump out of a box at me, and I'm just looking at him like, yeah, and? Um, and, and he's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. It's just a guy in a box. But for some people, like my kids would be freaked out. Right. And so the idea that, that we can just say, okay, this is a universal experience and this will definitely, this will cause X points and you will be incapacitated and, and gibbering. And I was like, no, that, that's not how it works for everybody. Let's, let's just get rid of ideas. I think the root of these of this of this trend that we see in systems is from the Call of Cthulhu role-play game, where basically you can see a weird fish, and next thing you know, you have seasonal affective disorder, and that's not how it works in anything. Like what? You're you're looking you're doing something purely unnatural, and then your response is opening up the DSM and like picking a random thing from it, which doesn't it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Why does a weird fish make me sad? <laughs> That's a quote for the agents. Why does a weird fish make you sad? I think 
the other issue, of course, that I had with it, and okay, to, prep, to coach my topic first, I am a neurotypical person, and I'm not disabled. I have chronic illnesses, but I'm not disabled. So these are perspectives coming from my limited perspective. But how I understand sanity mechanics to be problematic is that they do absolutely no favors for neurodivergent people around me, because we insist that neurotypical equals sane, neurodivergent equals insane. That is not correct at all. It is like, it sounds so blasé, but it's a spectrum. It's also minimizing and harmful when you insist on doing it a certain way. And then even on a game level, specifically, I find that super uncreative. Why are we forcing this? What about letting your players take the stage and say, okay, that freaked the fuck out of me. Like, hold on, we need to take a moment, right? Or I'm not too scared by it. Can I take a moment to think about whether my character would be? Because mm -hmm. it's it's an immersive experience. If it doesn't work for you, as Misha said, you're gonna have a very hard time figuring out why this matters. Again, why this is fish make me sad. Like, I can't connect it. Right. So it's it's lazy system design. If you insist on doing the core mechanics as it is now, like bring the stage to your players instead so that they can decide and try to build games that elicit those responses or helps them find the words for it. Because sometimes in particularly tense moments in horror, people won't be able to articulate what happens. And that's actually why I really like Bluebeard's Bride because it just goes, all right, um, it, if you're shivering, that's a thing. So let's focus on that, what's happening here. It gives you a chance mm -hmm. to make it collaborative and also weirdly gives people time to reduce the tension, think about it again, revisit it, and figure out how to gamify it. So I will say that mechanic has also been labeled as inaccessible because it requires the person running the game to be able to read body language, which not everybody does. Yeah. I think it's interesting because the game itself, because it's a feminist feminine horror game, like it draws it draws GMs in, or specifically, I think the term is like gravekeeper in. Yeah, something like that. There's a fancy Absolutely. name for it in game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, like the type of person who would run the game tends to be the kind of person who has the experience to read body language, which happens to be a feminine experience. So it becomes a question of this is an inaccessible design element. That being said does it also self-select and create its own like answer to the inexplicable groundskeeper somebody just in chat it's groundskeeper thank you <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah um but yeah like it's it's one of those things where it becomes this weird conversation in game design is the intentionality of what happens in game and like the practical realities versus does it need to be available to everyone which I we can talk do. about in a little bit as yeah. the nature of like, does horror need to be accessible to everyone? Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to just make a quick point on that too, because like horror is intensely personal. So maybe the design mm -hmm. question then, which you will answer multiple ways depending on where you are, is how do you make that personal aspect come out best in your design, knowing full well that it will not target everyone. And honestly, I think it should not. There is no universal fear. There's no such right. thing. We can convince ourselves that there is, but in reality, we're saying that and we're making a generalization. We can't speak for literally everybody on earth. And horror is one of those things that is specifically personal. So right. work towards making that bloom in your design and allowing that focus just there because you can always 
find another game to do another thing. So um, what, what you were saying about uh, university and what, what, what's scary and what isn't, which has been brought up a couple of different times. Um, I brought up the, the clarity mechanic, mechanics for Changeling, which are currently my favorite sanity me mechanics, partially because I love Changeling as a game as a whole, just as a, a clear disclaimer. That's my favorite game. I have a Changeling tattoo. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're just going to put that on the table. Um, but it's also my favorite because when you deal with clarity in, in 2.0, um, a lot of the mechanics are pointed towards what your character has been through before. Um, and, and so uh, I have post-traumatic stress disorder, okay? Um, and so I have a specific set of known triggers that, um, you know, can, can incapacitate me. Um, but my triggers are different from other people's. And the mechanics in Changeling specifically say, like, for example, if you are, you know, hitting upon a memory that is part of your character's durance, the part time when you became a Changeling, okay, and were captured by the Fae, those memories and those experiences, which are unique to your character, are what are causing you to have to roll for clarity. It's not, some things in the clarity mechanics are universal, you know, killing someone, all those kinds of things, they will damage your, your clarity track. So I like that because it is personalized and it allows uh, people to uh, deal with trauma if they want to bring some of their own, and we always do, you know, we always bring our trauma to our characters. We always bring our own issues, right? Um, so people will bring those things and, and put them on the table and it becomes, uh, especially in a good group where you're playing over a long period of time and really getting into your character's head, um, you can say, well, I think this would, or I think this wouldn't, and it becomes uh, a, consen a consensus driver with you and your character almost, like an internal consensus sort of thing. Um, and the other thing that I like about it as well is that it is a, it is a damage track so it leans, it lends itself to um, mending as a um, part of your role play, right? And as a part of the game mechanics. Um, what I did not care for when I dealt with some other sanity mechanics that were not my favorite um, was the idea that having PTSD or you know having um, a damaging thing occur. Um, was something that was permanent, right? This thing happens, I saw a fish and it made me sad, right? I mean, now I'm sad forever. Um, and that's not really what happens in, in Changeling. You have, okay, I, I saw a fish and it made me sad because it reminded me of the time that, you know, I was hit with a fish before or whatever. Um, so it's very personal, right? But But by spending time with the things that matter to me, because that's how you mend and change, like is by spending time with your touchstones, things that anchor you, right? You can get better and you can heal. And I think that's a really uh, wonderful and positive kind of mechanic. And even if, if the fish makes you sad and you get you know a, a condition, a seasonal affective disorder, you go into a fugue state, whatever it is, you can be brought back out of that. And it's, it, it's not a static interpretation of what it means to um, have psychic damage or to deal with a neurodiverse condition or anything like that. And your character can have a different understanding of the world and still have a perfectly full clarity track. You know, you you have a very different understanding of the world when you are 
have been to Arcadia and come back and you, you know, everybody looks very different to you, but you're not insane. You know, you just, you see things differently, but you know, so yeah. So, I'm just going to have us transition over still talking about sanity mechanics. But how would we design one to be reflective of the actual neurodivergent experience? Or at least the way I typically put it is the difference between um, mental illness and mental health. Everyone participates in mental health. Not everyone participates in mental illness because all of us have times where we're under the experience of stress or duress that makes us not think as clearly as we theoretically should be. But that doesn't mean that we have an underlying problem. It just means that we're human. So, so how would you design towards right. that? Or how would you just say, we're not gonna touch that at all and here's what we're designing instead? Because those are the two different interpretations I've seen bringing it into um, what has been super popular to talk about is the fate of Cthulhu from Evil Hat where they gave up on the sanity mechanic. They just said, we're not dealing with that at all. Mm -hmm. And like that became one of their most popular decisions when it came to their book is by giving up completely on the sanity mechanic, which at least for me as someone who is neurodivergent, I'm like, but I still want my experience in a game. So mm -hmm. maybe Cthulhu games are not the ones to put them in. But I, I personally don't want to give up on sanity mechanics. I just think we need to do a better job. So I, I like the idea when you're talking about like, oh, well, we're, we're you're, you're human. Oh. Go. No, 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 that's fine. That's fine, good. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I think three of us started talking to one. Uh. <laughs> I'm just going to call on Spider. Spider, your turn. Go. Okay. Um, so I, I like the idea of cards or temporary mechanics where you can indicate stress or you can you can mark stress out on a sheet or whatever, um, where uh, it's not like a random like say say I you know fill up with fill up my stress track and so now I'm going to have to either burn that stress off somehow or accept a temporary. Um, manifestation of my stress right so maybe maybe my muscles are really stiff because i've been doing this all week waiting for the election results and you know now i have a negative i know right now i have a negative to my physical stats or whatever or i saw a fish and it made me sad and so now i have a card and that card tells me you know okay in order to resolve this and hand it back in you know here's what i have to do either i you know i take a risk as a character and so on and so forth uh, and I like mechanics that reward players for doing that, right? So um, whether you take a beat or you you gain some sort of resource or you you know get a pat on the head in some way from the system, right? Just give give the player a pat on the head for doing something risky with their character and, and taking on those consequences. It makes it uh, enjoyable. Thank you, Roomba's Roomba's dreaming. Um, <laughs> Sorry, he started whining next to me. Um, it rewards the 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 players for taking on that topic and makes it something that you know people want to engage with. Because anytime you give someone like you know a shiny or a beat or whatever, they're more likely to buy in and want to do that thing. And then it just becomes 
habitual and enjoyable if you're all buying in. So I think make it temporary and give yeah, the, the and pat the, the players on the head for doing it. Go. Sorry. So so one of the I mean one of the games that I like the the way that it handles some of the the same concepts it's not a horror game but masks and conditions that you can so you know I'm angry I'm insecure I'm this there's a couple ways you can get rid of this you can like there's a something that's specific to that condition that you can do like you know okay uh, I'm afraid I run away I'm angry I beat something up you know but there's comfort and support which will help you get rid of this so you can go and just talk to your friends and and things like that and these are things that you could do like that mimic some of the, the same strategies that we use in real life to get rid of to to help with conditions I, I won't say get rid of conditions because some conditions you don't get rid of you just deal with them um and so I, I like especially even in horror things that do that same thing so if you know I've got this thing that you know I, I saw a fish it made me sad um how can I deal with this fish oh well uh if I go and maybe I prepare the fish in a certain way it makes me feel better because then I can eat the fish and, you know, it reminds me of something else other than just the fish that made me sad. Um, or, you know, I, I can transform the fish into something that makes me happy again. Um, and, and so having something where it's like, okay, this is the thing that, this is the problem. This is how I can deal with the problem. It not, might not make the problem completely go away, but it'll help me be able to get back into a baseline level of normal for me. I think that, 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 Looking at sanity for, as a as a resource and looking at these ways is, is a is a good way of approaching things, but I don't think it's the only way of approaching things. I think it's also possible to kind of build things up from the perspective of say a single neurodivergent trait or a single mental illness. Uh, having a game about depression is going to feel very different than a game about say schizophrenia, or which will feel different from a game about ADHD or a game about autism. And I think that obviously these games need to be own voices or at least need to have right. strong consultant from people who have that perspective. Like, say, if I was going to make a game about depression, I'd have a game where that cycle is in there, where that, that build-up and that drop where you, you can't always do everything, not because you're incapable, but just because you just can't at that moment. And, like, schizophrenia, I'd, I'd build in the idea of, like, not everything is always going to be what it is. And have that be throughout the entire system rather than just being a separate subsystem. Um, many of my players appreciate sanity mechanics that actually have an opt-in and also a fee, uh, a, as, as was mentioned by Spider earlier, a ability to heal. For them, that's very important because it, it provides some level of hope. It also provides a lot more realism. And if you, like one thing that we like to do with Blades of the Dark, because it does have a stress mechanic. And if you do things, rules is written, once the stress bar fills up, that's trauma already. Uh, mm -hmm. My tables, right, my tables like to go, okay, would your character actually be traumatized by this event? Or have they just been super busy the past three months that they just cannot function for a bit? And if you gave right. them a break, they could clear it out, right? Versus going like, suddenly you are haunted. Suddenly you are cold, right? If mm. you opted it in and assumed basic intelligence. I know that that comes off very, very weird, but like if you assume that your players are intelligent, if you did not assume that they that they wouldn't know better, like their kids or something, then you do everybody a lot more favors. Opt in rather than force it and like collaborate and encourage that sort of collaboration. 
And two, you can take like that. You were talking about that timeout kind of concept. Well, does your character just need some time away? Well, yeah. so your characters, I, we did this when we played Blades in the Dark um, and, and Ray's stress track filled up. So their character took the a game session off because was off doing something, you know, and Ray came in and played an NPC, like played a feature NPC for a week. So that is another great way to get your players to buy into stuff like that because, okay, so I've accepted this consequence for my character and now I get to play a cool ghost, you know, like that was really cool and we had a really fun time with it. Um, it was probably like one of my favorite sessions that, that we did was when Ray was playing this NPC. Fantastic. So you can like again incentivize your players to want to buy in because when they do buy in they get to do cool stuff you know and when you get people to to say oh you know i'm going to take that hit because when i take that hit you know this is going to have a cool plot thing is going to happen and i'm going to get to be the center of attention because everyone well not everyone but like a lot of people and especially in gaming context we want to be the center of attention we want that you know camera on us so by accepting that, you know, oh, you know, my my changeling took enough psychic damage that, you know, she's gone into a coma. And now everyone has to, like, go into her dreamscape and, like, wake her up. How cool is that? You know, like, I get to play a ghost this at whatever it is. If you provide that incentive, they will buy in and they will do your work for you. And, and as a storyteller, especially... Um, a lot of times with some of the stuff we can feel like we're like pushing a rock up a hill to try to like get people to like buy into some of this stuff. But when you incentivize your players enough to to do this cool stuff and to make it like where they're the the focus of the cool thing, right? Or where they can pass off the focus of the cool thing to someone else, which often makes people feel good too, you know. Compersion in gaming is totally a thing. Then, then they'll do that work for you, and it actually makes you it easier for you to run your game and more fun for you as a storyteller because you're not having to be like, well, no, you have to do the thing. They're like, I get to do the thing. They're, they want to do it. So, I am going to have us transition over to questions in the chat because there's really good ones, and we have about 15 minutes left. Awesome. So uh, the first one is if technology will work. Uh, <laughs> So what games, this comes from Geeky Gimp, what games use mental illness effectively without being ableist? I think that uh, Unknown Armies, I think is a good one, because it's, uh, as, you as you go through the stress, you do change the person, but that change is not inherently negative or positive. It just is your survival response in response to these negative things that are happening to you in your life, which is, how a lot of mental illness occurs. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I obviously I'm going to say changeling because I, I'm absolutely a, a changeling nerd, but I, I really do think that um, Megan Fitzgerald was the, the dev for changeling 2.0. And I have to give her a, a big shout out. Um, and the entire team that worked on the core book for changeling 2.0 did a really good job with uh, trying to uh, contextualize trauma in a game. And I think that that is, um, it's really enjoyable. And I really like the way that um, Scion handles a lot of uh, pieces of, of disability. Um, it's really so, um, you, one of my favorites. You also don't necessarily want to keep so I'm going to chime in with Mothership, which was originally presented to me from Pam. Um, and 
I know a lot about anxiety disorders, having studied them pretty extensively. And the mechanic it has for tra not trauma, but like specifically anxiety loads and stuff like that. It makes me uncomfortable, but I can't find a single actual flaw in it, which I think is like, like nice. I, pretty much what it comes from is I think there's not quite enough explanation in order for it to be used in a definitely safe way, but mm -hmm. the mechanics themselves are exactly what you want them to be. Yeah, I was, so I was going recommend. to add. Yeah, sorry, uh, I was going to add that part about mothership because it it starts the conversation on a system level, and if you just like, I would have personally preferred, even though I love the game a lot, if there was more of a grounder to it and a reminder to use safety tools. I understand that the crowd is coming okay. from. Uh, baseline assumes that people will use safety tools, but I think that's being very kind to the general populace of tabletop. Uh, being being blunt about it, like uh, they didn't put it in because they figured their players should know these things that this is an right. opt-in, that this is consent, that it, you have to be safe. But most players don't, so right. it it was it was nice how they divided it, how they even have a fear mechanic, but you don't have to interpret it as fear. Uh, they even have, um, oh, okay. it's also a stress mechanic, but you so, might not interpret it as stress. So. Right. We're asking for clarification on how these mechanics actually work mechanically. So can we have a little bit of explanation on that? Oh, uh, for Mothership, for example, it's a roll-under system. So you can increase your percentage of success on whether you can roll under the number or not. So obviously a lower number would be bad for you. So if your fear stat, for example, is 30, and you, it's very easy to roll way over a 30 when it comes to a D10 system. So that in itself, I've been told, adds a lot of stress for people because they're used to big numbers making them happy. But in this case, it's kind of a reversal to your usual, where your big numbers will make you go, oh shit, I could very easily overshoot this. So it, that, those are the two layers I can see on my end about it. The, the dice mechanic in itself, the decision to make it roll under, and then the fact that um, what, there are certain tables on the game, in the game that you can roll on to see the kind of effect, and then they have different prompts that you can interpret accordingly. Um, with Changeling, you have to buy your clarity pool is determined by two of your um, attributes, two of your base character stats added together. So things that might have otherwise been quote unquote dump stats for some of your combat characters, um, it makes it matter um, in, in a way that it didn't matter in previous editions of the game. Like you could just be at clarity too and it didn't really matter because oh well, when you lose clarity it's gone forever, but now you have this pool and it's like your health pool. Um, and as far as like how it's kind of baked into the the game, um, the four basic courts that characters start out as your like opt-in social organizations are based around fear, sorrow, desire, yeah. and anger, which are all trauma responses. So it's a question of how is how does your character respond to this trauma that they've been through, and and what aspect of that are they focusing on, you know, and and how do they make peace? with their fear, with their wrath, with their, you know, the kind of desire for for filling in the hole that was left by trauma. You know, how, how do you deal with that? Um, and real quick, before I forget, I do want to say there's not a mechanic for it, um, 
but because it, it's all negotiation based. But I do want to say the arc song LARP um, really deals um, with memory loss and the regain uh, regaining of memory through trauma in a very uh, organic baked into the universe kind of way. Um, and it's probably one of my favorite uh, depictions I've ever seen of trauma based memory loss. Uh, and quickly, can you give us the designer of that game? Uh, and now I'm completely blanking. It's it's Shoshana's company, and I oh, man, I'm so terrible. It's Phoenix Outlaw. Phoenix Outlaw, thank you. My brain just like you asked me, and the and I could see the logo in my head, and it just went out my ears. Phoenix Outlaw. Great. Yeah. Uh, unknown, unknown Army says I think four different stress tracks: isolation, self, violence, and the unnatural. And as you encounter things that challenge your understanding of those things, you see a weird fish, for example. That's an unnatural thing. So you'd mark your unnatural stress chart. Once you fill out a chart, you make a roll. If you fail that roll, you have a breakdown, and then you clear the chart. If you succeed, you clear the chart, and you get a hardened tick. Whenever thing, so now whenever things would only give you like one point of that thing, it doesn't affect you because you, you're used to it. But right. that slowly is turning into someone who say, is now inured very heavily to violence. So now you're someone who's going to be all right with violence, which is not exactly a neurotypical way of looking at the world. Or you're right. someone who, who is, doesn't have a sense of the self anymore, or who accepts the unnatural as natural. And that, that's a change in the personality that comes from succeeding at dealing with these bad things. While if you fail at them, you just, you just you have a bad, you have a bad moment. So we are very short on time, but I would like to talk about this question uh, very quickly. How might we better cater our horror at the table to each player design-wise beyond the obvious safety tools and base level conversation? And so unfortunately, we don't have time for anything more than first impressions, but like anyone who has something to say. Uh, pick your game well. There's, there's lots of games out there. Each game is going to be different. Pick the game that you think would be the best game for your table. And respect your table more often than not. We yeah. pick the game well, respect your table. Whenever people enter into games, I have the full, I have the full uh, belief that we do it out of good intent. But the mm. thing with a good intent is that it's coached in our idea of fun and everybody has a different idea of fun. And some people yeah. have a very twisted idea of fun, speaking bluntly. Like some people like murder hoboing, other people like, uh, like being terrible towards women. That is fun for them, but that is not fun for me and uh, respect your table. And honestly, uh, maybe this only applies to my culture, but be okay, or rather my gaming culture, be okay with kicking people out. Uh, yes. Horror mm -hmm. is, right? Horror is not the genre where you can negotiate or expect people to be, to just grin and bear it. If there is somebody yeah. at your table being harmful, remove them and yep. deal. you can deal with the fallout later. But it's not good if you keep that person in because horror yep. was a buy-in. You don't have to make the horror bleed into real life by adding that damage. Yeah. Yes, say, saying we don't do that yeah, here uh, is a very powerful thing to. We don't we don't do that here. Like just set some set some topics. You know the concept of lines and veils. Uh, just set some topics off limits entirely. You know again we're going to tap back on on Phoenix Outlaw. Every Phoenix Outlaw LARP. Sexual assault and sexual harassment are just off the table. And if you bring them up, you are banned for life. Like, that's it. You're done. You know, and you set that very clear at the beginning 
and make it a rule and be okay with saying, eh, eh, no, we're not going to do that. Um, sorry, Misha, go ahead. I totally bowled over you. No, it's like horror is intensely personal and what might be okay one day may not be okay the next day. So you, there's, there's very few things that you could just blanket say, yep. these are what we're always going to do. And these are what we're never going to do. Like, uh, there are some tables that I would be perfectly comfortable playing Bluebeard's Bride with because I know and I trust the players that I'm sitting with that, yeah, we're going to we're gonna touch on these topics. It's going to freak me out. It's going to be okay. Uh, just like there are some horror movies that I'm perfectly okay watching at like noon on a Tuesday, but not like 11 p.m. when it's a new moon on a Friday the 13th because yeah. they're very different experiences. And right. you, you can't just, there's there's no way to just blanket say, yes, this will always work. And yes, this game is always going to do this thing. And yes, this game, because it's not. And you, mm -hmm. again, that's the beauty of games is no two experiences with the same game are exactly alike. And that's the beauty of games. Okay. I, I, yeah, very much. Thank you. So we're going to call it a wrap here. My name is Ann Ratchet. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as under slash M-N-G-W-A. Everybody else, where can we find you and give you money? <laughs> OK, I like money, so I'm going to go first. Uh, I'm Pam, Pam Punzalan, also known as Pamu. You can find me at The Dovetailer on Twitter, also Itch and Patreon. Uh, I'm Misha B. Uh, I am on Twitter as BG Gameworks. Uh, you can, the best place to find me is if you support the uh, More Seats at the Table uh, newsletter and uh, Patreon. Um, we are a bi-weekly newsletter that uh, highlights gender marginalized creators and their games and their Kickstarters and all kinds of fun things that they've been doing. Uh, delivered to your email inbox every two weeks. So uh, go look for More Seats at the Table. Uh, I'm Mitz Meinberg at Meinberg13 on Twitter. Uh, also, Goat Song Publishing on uh, DriveThruRPG and itch.io. Uh, Spider, I'm VA Spider, like literally everywhere Twitter, Tumblr, wherever you can find me, Patreon. Um, you can also find uh, my art uh, at Nerdy Kepi, which is a good quality queerware. And we are launching our newest Kickstarter on Monday. And that is at, uh, you can find that at proud to the bone, P R O U D T O T H E B O N E dot com. We want the Corbett skull, so hurry and fund it. <laughs> yeah, as you say, you gotta get to that, gotta get to that stretch goal so you can have the Corbett skull, right? <laughs> I'm so happy. Okay. I'm so excited. <laughs> uh, thank you to our panelists. Thank you for an amazing audience. Like it was super fun interacting with you. Uh, for the questions that we didn't get to, um, please join us in the panel watching channel on the Discord after that, and we'll do our best to cover the questions that we didn't get to cover. Um, and like, we'd love to hear your opinions, your thoughts on these topics. Come join us. Um, and to the future, you have our random Twitters and places to find us. Again, let's have a conversation. Like, that's the only way forward on this. Got to talk about it. Got to do better. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.